What's going on, guys? Adam Comaro, host of the Duke Basketball Corner podcast, here with a quick cold open before this new episode starts. I'm going to put this message before all of the 2018-19 season ending episodes wrapping up this season, just to put it out there that uh, I am looking for a co-host. So for next season, uh, we can even start uh, this summer. I've been doing this podcast for years, and it's we it's gotten to the point where I am having, um, with my schedule and everything, I'm just having more trouble finding the motivation to do uh, the solo pods during the year and the season-ending pods. I was fortunate enough to get some guests to help me out with these season-ending pods, but the reason I basically joined Twitter, started the pod, everything was to talk about Duke with others, and Twitter, I didn't realize at the time, Twitter is pretty much a one-way thing, um, and it's tough to have a real conversation on uh, Twitter, so that is what it is, and the podcast, I mean, if I'm not, if I don't have a guest on, then I'm just pretty much talking to myself, so I want to, I just want to have a conversation about Duke. And I would really encourage anyone who might be interested to listen to my previous episodes. Email me at dukebasketballcorner at gmail.com. Again, that's dukebasketballcorner at gmail.com, dukebasketballcorner, all one word. And just tell me, tell me about yourself. Tell me what you, what you thought of uh, the episodes, whatever you listened to, what, uh, what type of fan you are. Just anything that could help me get to know you. And, uh, yeah, I'd be interested in anyone who pretty much is interested. So, again, I'm going to put this before all the season-ending episodes just to get that message out there um, that, hey, you want, you're interested in talking Duke? Talk Duke with me. This, this is more in-depth than uh, other Duke pods, so, but I'm not going to hold anyone to that, to any sort of specific standard, as long as you can hold a conversation and not kind of, I mean... I, my standards aren't too high, so I'll basically be able to hold a conversation. All right, so um, on this episode, I was joined by Lauren Brownlow, and it was recorded last uh, last Wednesday. This is being released on Wednesday the tenth. It was recorded. This is being released on Wednesday the seventeenth of April. It was recorded on the tenth, so it was recorded two days after Virginia won the national championship, and uh, some stuff has changed in terms of transfers and. Uh, who has declared and all that stuff. That The episode wasn't meant to really handle all that stuff. I went um, into some of who teams were losing just because it did apply, but mostly it was to capture really what happened during the season with especially Virginia, focusing a bunch on Virginia at the beginning, and then the three triangle teams, and then just going through all the ACC teams after that. So there is extra time to those four teams, but then just going through, and Lauren was awesome, and it was a lot of fun. I will say, uh, I will call myself out just because I'm already recording this intro. Wisconsin-Michigan State 2000 Final Four, uh, or semifinal, and UConn-Butler 2011 Final. That was 53-41, not, I think I said 43-41. Yeah, a big deal, big deal. I know, it's vital information. Uh, since it recorded, I know Ty Jerome signed with an agent. A little bit unexpected, but can't blame him. 
so he's going pro. Kyle Guy is testing the waters. And Kerry Blackshear, he's entering the transfer portal, transfer portal as a grad transfer. So he will definitely be in high demand if he chooses to not just follow uh, Buzz Williams to Texas A&M. So that was very interesting to see. And I'm sure there's others. If you look it up, it's not hard to find that information of who has possibly declared, who's testing the waters, who signed with an agent, all that stuff. But this is, again, focused on the ACC teams and how they did for the 2018-19 season and kind of just a little bit moving forward for each team in the ACC. So there will be plenty more season-ending uh, Duke-specific related podcasts, whether uh, Michigan State, um, kind of State of Duke, and just all kinds of stuff. I might even put out more solo than I had initially planned, but uh, I just recorded a massive State of Duke podcast with uh, Brent Wilkerson New, uh, and it, that, that's going to be two parts. That was, that was a marathon, and that was a lot of fun. So, hope you'll stick with me. Again, if interested in possibly being a co-host, DukeBasketballCorner at gmail.com. What's going on, guys? Adam Comero here with the Duke Basketball Corner podcast. And what I felt would be a good idea for this episode is to kind of go around the ACC with each team and just see how we feel about uh, different teams and how their seasons went. Because I know with Virginia winning the national championship, really cool for them, really cool for Bennett. Uh, I think we're all too ready to jump on forward, and that's fine for those who choose to do that. But for me personally, I wasn't able to kind of go in depth into each team during the season as much as I would like, so there may be some things I missed out on. And there's a lot that happened during the year I think would be good to know from an ACC insider. So I brought on uh, Lauren Brownlow, and she's going to help us out here. She provides ACC and more triangle-specific coverage for uh, 999 The Fan and WRAL, along with her Topics and Takes podcast, the most boringly named podcast since Duke Basketball Corner, in my opinion. But uh, so she, so we're going to kind of go around. Obviously, we'll spend more time on Virginia and Duke and everything in the triangle than the others. But just to kind of help us out and really uh, not tell us how to feel, but just help us to give some context around the ACC basketball season for 2018-19. So thanks so much for joining me, Lauren. And let me just – the first question I want to ask – is uh, 10 out of the last 19 years, a team from the ACC has either won or been the runner-up. It's eight titles, two runner-ups, plus another two champs in Louisville and Syracuse, if you want to count prior, though I guess you'd need to subtract Maryland's 2002 championship if you're going to do that. How much do you choose or not choose to use the NCAA tournament as almost a referendum on how the seasons go? Because, I mean, you think back to, like, the 70s, if you didn't win the conference tournament, you weren't even getting there. So it's kind of, you can go one way or the other, but I think sometimes you go too far, sometimes too far the other way. How, how do you feel about uh, that subject? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think we do. It, it is such a random event, or it can be. I mean, one off night, one player getting hurt at the wrong time, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you're out. I will say this. I think the fact that there has been sort of a, more of a diversity of ACC teams, like you mentioned, winning 
uh, titles or getting to Final Fours is a good thing for the league. Ultimately, um, I, I think uh, Texas Tech, if I'm not mistake, mistaken, I think was only the second team since like the 50s to play in the title game from the Big 12. That's not Kansas. That's not great. Um, even even in a random event like this one, I think you want to see um, here and there at least some of your teams, you know, making a Final Four, winning a title. Like the Big Ten doesn't have a title since uh, 2000, Michigan State's last title as well. That doesn't mean that your league stinks. Obviously, that's not the only measure, but I think it is a good thing, even in such a random event that, you know, it doesn't always tell you how good or bad a program is if they can't, you know, progress past a certain point. It is a little bit of a necessary measuring stick. I think even if you look at Final Fours and nothing else, I think it's an important uh, measuring stick to use in terms of like which teams are at that higher level and can sort of threaten for that type of a run. Yeah, I mean, but you think about it. I mean, Coach K was even he was getting to so many Final Fours. He was getting to championship games. But he was right. still known as the coach who couldn't win the big one, really, until they upset UNLV and then beat Kansas in the 91 final. Then, I mean, basically what people do is just move on to whoever's next. So now that Tony yeah. Bennett's won, so now, so now it's going to be um, whoever it is, whether it's um, – uh, Scott Drew at Baylor or Mike Bray or Leonard Hamilton, whoever, we'll just, we'll just move on to the next. Mark to say, Few, probably. Yeah, ex- exactly. So I, I think we're too quick to say who can't done it rather than give credit Absolutely. To, to who can at some points. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great point about uh, like the Big 12 and other conferences. I think Oklahoma made the final one time, but they didn't win it. So yeah, yeah that, that, that's a great point. Um, so, I, I mean, that one other thing about that specifically is I'm still trying to figure out what's kind of – I think Coach K, obviously the total wins and the and the tournament championships as well as just the longevity of everything, that's obviously kind of GOAT status numbers. But, I mean, the two things that really stick out are he's had two chances in the Elite Eight to make the Final Four for – and he made the Final Four in 1986, and he had two chances the two, past two years to make it 32 and 33 years later. That's just unreal the more I think about it. Then the other thing is in 34 tournament appearances since the uh, tournament was expanded in 85, he's never been seated below two twice in a row. Like that's mind-boggling to me. So that I think those two stats kind of is just a real credit to the longevity and – just the high standard of his program and what however many final fours and championships those are great and obviously banners as he makes clear those are the priorities but i mean to not be seated below two twice in a row for 34 appearances and you could say like you you can't say 34 straight times because there's the 95 missed it but in the 34 straight times they've made it never below two twice in a row that's unreal to me yeah, it's, I was going to say that's a crazy stat and just a testament to how, you know, consistent that they've been. And like you look at, you know, like Roy Williams, I think the stat is he's never lost in the first round when they've been in it, which is a, another crazy stat to me because, like we've seen, anything can happen in these early round games, even if you're the higher seeded team. And, um, you know, it's really, I think that, you know, certainly the ACC is way better off having both of them there and, and, you know, even if Coach K hasn't made it, you know, hasn't won the sixth title, it's it's kind of a first world problem situation <laughs> to have it in terms of like, OK, yeah, you can't have a sixth title just yet. But um, they're still producing at a really high level in the regular season and, and at a level that I think a lot of programs would be 
envious of. It's just we hold Duke to a different standard because they're Duke and it's Coach K. Yeah, and we'll talk plenty about Duke, but let's start out um, deservedly with Virginia. Because, I mean, there's just so many players in different situations. Obviously, the Bennett era is the focus, but still, you could talk about guys like Curtis Staples, Junior Burrow, Corey Alexander, Brian Stith, John Crotty, go before that with... uh, with uh, Olden Polonies, Rick Carlisle, the big man, Ralph Sampson, who, to be honest, I had no idea that Braxton Key, they're actually cousins. I'm sure you knew that, but I, I had no idea him and Ralph Sampson, he calls him uncle, because I guess that's just the way they do. But uh, that was a cool little connection there. There's just There's been a big history. Virginia's been such a successful program, but since they haven't won the uh, quote-unquote big game, I mean, this was just so big. And then with Bennett, you got Malcolm Brogdon, Justin Anderson, Joe Harris, Mike Scott, Roger Mason, and just countless others. This is just, it's a really cool uh, kind of accomplishment because as I was saying, no matter how good Bennett has done in the regular season and plenty of times in the ACC tournament, he was always known, or not, not always, just for the past few years, he's been known as the coach couldn't win the big one. And Everyone loved to forget how DeAndre Hunter did not play versus UMBC last year. So it's just, you you could say the college basketball gods might have been looking out for UVA this year. They were down with, I I think the stat is like 13 seconds or less in their last three games of the tournament. And they managed to win all of them. There were some interesting calls, but that happens in every game. I just think overall, it's deserved. It's an accomplishment. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm happy for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great. It's nice to see because, you know, I I felt like I was having dumb arguments with people half the time because it's like, well, it doesn't mean anything if they can't win a big one. And I'm like, okay, I understand that it's (laughs) it means it will mean more when they actually do win the national title. But at the same time, that doesn't mean everything they've accomplished in the regular season means nothing like it doesn't suddenly invalidate everything that they do just because they haven't won a title yet. Um, But, yeah, so I think it was really nice to sort of get that. Um, get that sort of critique or however you want to put it off of the resume, so to speak. And it's nice, you know, for me as someone who appreciates what they do and I even more so now that they've added some wrinkles to what they do offensively, I appreciate them even more for that. Um, And I think it's been an evolution for Tony and and, uh, Tony Bennett. And I think he's adjusted really well. And that's what you have to do when you want to be a great coach. You can't just coach one way forever and, and, and hope it works enough to you know do what you want to do you have to be able to adjust and change and you know credit to him and his staff that they were they were able to do that after what happened against UMBC they sort of looked at things and said this is what we have to do and they added some different stuff to that offense and and it worked really well and I you know I've like I said I've enjoyed watching them play I enjoy what they do um and I was happy to see it pay off so that people can stop saying well I guess it doesn't work in March yeah, because I remember, I think Quinn Cook, he's the one who started at Duke with the whole banners mean everything, we're going banner hunting. But I think sometimes we forget Quinn Cook hadn't won any banner at Duke, including yeah. the ACC tournament. So that was just about getting him something. Obviously, the NCAA tournament's the most important. But UVA, they've proven the ability to win these one-game small sample sizes and uh, not to kind of – Uh, beat a dead horse but i mean these are 18 to 22 year olds most of them if let's say they broke their they got in an argument with a girlfriend the day before that could screw up their entire next game i mean before the ncaa started i mean before the nba started doing uh making like the first round best of seven i think it used to be best of three 
Um, or best of five. I, I just remember like the Nuggets. They beat the Sonics one year, and Dikembe Mutombo was just on the ground squeezing a basketball, screaming, and it was just such a huge uh, eight over one seed upset. And if they had played a larger sample size, I'm not sure that would have happened. So I think that was best of three. Then you take it to one game in a uh, six-game tournament sample size. It's just anything can happen. So I I know we've kind of already gone over this, but I think it's just it's if they were going to get unlucky in past years, uh, then it was great to see them have a little luck on their side now. Yeah, I no doubt. I agree. And one other thing, it was kind of interesting. If they had played Michigan State, that would have been the one time that, or that yeah. would have been the time that uh, his father, Dick Bennett, he went to the, he got to the 2000 final with the, kind of, look up the stats for 2000 Wisconsin. That is the most odd Final Four team you've ever seen. And the final score was 43-41. They lost to Michigan State, which ironically is the same final score as, uh, I think, uh, uh, what was it, UConn over Butler in the most horrific NCAA tournament final ever. That was 2011. Um, so I think when people, when some saw that it was going to be UVA and Texas Tech, they thought it was just, oh, this is bad basketball because of low scoring. But these are two great teams. Um, they might play a little slower, but they're very, they're both pretty efficient offensively. They both have uh, a lotto pick on their side with Hunter and um, and. Uh, I'm sorry, the Texas Tech. Culver, yeah. Yeah, Culver. Um, so, so, I mean, they, they were skilled offensively. So I think uh, it, it was a really exciting NCAA tournament final. So that was that was really nice to see. And then also just as you were talking about the wrinkles, it wasn't just blocker mover that Bennett played. It was a lot of uh, continuity ball screen and even just totally clearing out. There was like five straight possessions in the championship yep. <laughs> game where they just cleared out, and you couldn't even imagine that happening no. um, in past years under Bennett. So with me, I think the biggest thing that helped was just the trust in talented players being able to make plays, either give them a screen or just clear out and let them go. And that wouldn't have happened past years, and credit to the talent he's getting. But also it's just – as you said, the ability to adapt and also the rotations. Like you have a guy like Braxton Key, who I think for uh, three straight games prior to Texas Tech, he was damn near out of the rotation. I think he played like one minute in one game, then like three minutes in the next, I think 10 minutes the game before. Then he was a better matchup than Diakite, so he played 29 in the final. And it's just guys are ready to step up. They had the trust. So I think a lot of it was just trusting to go out of your comfort zone by Bennett. I may not be exact on that, but that's what I saw from my perspective. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And you're right. It's a matchup thing. I mean, there were games earlier in the season where Kihei Clark had, you know, was not the right guy to be on the court. And I think after that first Duke game, especially when RJ Barrett was at the point and Kihei was very clearly not someone who belonged on the court at that time. I think after that game, um, Tony sort of adjusted a little better. And in games where there was a lot more size and, and Kihei was going to struggle to guard some people, he just didn't play him quite as much. Jack Salt was somebody he played less. He played him only four minutes of the title game. And that was somebody that I know Virginia fans would go crazy about because he doesn't play offense as well as they would have wanted. But, I mean, look, you're not going to play for Tony if you don't defend like he wants you to. And, um, you know, that's why Jay Huff, we didn't see a, a lot of Jay Huff and we'll probably see more of him in years to come. Cause I think it takes Virginia bigs a few years, um, to really get into that system and know what they have to do. 
and how to do it defensively. So, I, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's like you said, everybody stepped up when they needed to sort of fill their own roles. And I just wish that this that type of ISO clear out would have been around when Malcolm Brogdon was there. <laughs> do you think the key to Virginia was uh, was Diakite uh, coloring his hair? <laughs> it's I mean, I, I definitely like was not super a fan of that. Not that he cares <laughs> or asked me. And I know like they like roasted him. I know DeAndre Hunter like roasted him with Cisco on his Instagram story at one point, which I found to be hilarious, but like, but yeah, I mean, he, it seemed to work for him. I mean, he certainly played, I thought he played great for most of the NCAA tournament. He's a guy that I thought would really make a big, big leap this year. And and he showed flashes, but you know, eh, not quite all the time. And I think um, he is another guy that I expect to take, you know, kind of a monumental leap forward next year for them. Do you, do you think his shot against Purdue will be known as a kind of the iconic moment of the tournament, I mean, obviously for Virginia, but the iconic moment of that entire tournament. I want it to be the assist from Kihei Clark because my that's gosh, a, that's a great point. I mean, not not to you know, Mamadi has to make the shot, you know, but that that assist was, I mean, honestly, it was a spectacular pass. I I, I watched it. I feel like I watched it on a loop for like a day after that. Like I couldn't believe that he made that pass in that situation and in that moment, just sort of the strength and the vision that he had to throw that was was unreal to me. So I. I I hope it's more the pass than the shot. No offense to uh, Mamadi on that one. Uh, I, I totally that that is a great point. All right, last thing about Virginia: is there any um, individual um, kind of takeaways you have? I mean, you had Hunter who started off the tournament pretty strong, then had a couple of down games. And since everyone uses, not everyone, I should stop saying that. Since some use the tournament as a referendum for anything, and oh, he shouldn't be a, a lotto pick anymore. Then after starting out something like one for seven in the final, he exploded. And so that was big. I I look at him. I haven't. I need to watch more film on him to see exactly. But there are some Kawhi Leonard comparisons. But that could just be a lazy take of uh, kind defense, of defense yeah. first and, <laughs> and a quiet guy. But uh, then there's the um, there's uh, Kyle guy who went through his situation with. Uh, just he, he had some mental issues that he was dealing with last year, yeah. um, not just after the UMBC loss, but during it with uh, just, just some issues going on. And uh, also, I would say that uh, Jerome, Ty mm-hmm. Jerome, his passing in the NCAA tournament was huge. So I thought those three, they, they really they, they played really well. And I guess Diakite, he also I heard I, I wish I remembered the source that he talked to Bennett after the ACC tournament and said that was on me he didn't play uh he didn't play aggressively enough so he's like that will never that won't happen again for the rest of the season so is there anything else you um you want to share about virginia or just specific players yeah i mean i think you pretty much covered um almost everything there i i've always said that while i think you know hunter's their best player and if you want to use stats to determine everything i you'd probably slot kyle second and then maybe jerome third but i always all year long felt like jerome was their most important player and when he wasn't playing well they weren't going to play well and i think the tournament sort of bore that out where you know when he wasn't on the court like when he picked up four fouls against auburn that was going to be trouble for them and uh, when he was off like he was in the ac tournament that was going to be trouble so um and he, he's an interesting guy to watch he's kind of an emotional guy and he can get caught up in it sometimes, sometimes for the, you know, in a bad way. But um, I, I think that's that's something that I always found interesting to watch. And I can probably pretty confidently say that Kyle Guy is almost certainly the only Final Four MO, uh, most outstanding player that follows me on Twitter. Ooh, that, 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 that is vital. That is absolutely vital. 
All right, last question about Virginia, or kind of Virginia-related. If you put Jack Salt and uh, Steven Adams of the Oklahoma City Thunder on the New Zealand team, would that be the most lethal screen team in the history of the, oh my God. the basketball? I feel like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it might be up there. I mean, Jack, that that's what they're going to miss a lot. I remember when they lost Darion Atkins a few years ago, and I thought to myself, you know what they're going to miss the most about him, and it sounds silly, but his, his ability to set screens. And I think that's something they'll miss. From Jack as well, assuming those guys can't, you know, step up and set the same kind of screens that Jack did because man alive, like that was not a guy you wanted screening you. Okay. And I lied. One more, one more, um, with Virginia, obviously I think we can assume, um, that, uh, Hunter's going, is there anyone else besides Salt? that you think may uh, test the waters at least. I don't understand why everyone who has a chance wouldn't right. kind of just at least go to the combine. It couldn't hurt. Yeah. Um, but do you think maybe Kyle Guy or or, uh, or um, Jerome might at least go to the combine or they're just coming back immediately? Yeah, I would expect them to at least test. Um, that would be my guess. And, and yeah, I mean, look, if you're Kyle – you know, you're about to get married. Um, you, you know, you're, you've just won MOP of the final four. That's not to say he doesn't seem to really like college. I remember when I was there for game day, he was the only Virginia player actually when, uh, you know, game day was there for the Duke game. He was the only Virginia player that showed up for game day. Um, and I just thought that was cool. And he seemed really into it and was like super excited. And, um, I've always really liked Kyle, you know, his personality and everything else. So he might really like college, but you know, your, your MOP of the final four, like at a certain point, there's nowhere to go but down. Um, but sure, I'm sure there's things that he could at least get feedback about from NBA people and maybe same with, with Ty. Maybe they tell him, hey, you need to work on X, Y, Z um, and then come back. I mean, I think if they if they both come back or even maybe just one of them, they're going to be, you know, far and away favorites, you know, to win the league next year. If they lose them, if they lose all three of those guys, though, you know, Hunter, Guy and Jerome, that's that'd be tough. Is Dave Matthews Band a big fan of uh, Virginia? Are they going to be like playing a concert or is it? I'm not sure. I don't know <laughs> if it's like a Charlottesville thing or like what. I don't know if they're like Virginia fans per se. I have no idea. Very disappointed in your insight right there. All <laughs> right. So let's move on to uh, Duke. I mean, I'm going to give plenty of context on my year end review kind of things. But so I, I just, what, do you, what is your overall takeaway from Duke's season and specifically the tournament? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it, I think if they had kept going on a run, they might have started getting some of the takes Virginia was in the sense of like, oh, they just keep getting lucky. I don't, you know, basketball is not that simple as we, you know, as we know, um, <laughs> you know, you, yes, you sometimes need luck in an event like this, but you got to be in a position to benefit from it to get there in the first place. So, um, you know, I think they... Uh, I don't know that they played as well as we saw them play at other times this season in the tournament, maybe even sometimes in the ACC tournament. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they played as well um, as they played sometimes in the in the ACC tournament as they did in the um, NCAA tournament. And that was a little surprising to me um, because I think I expected sort of that role that they were on to continue. And I just it just felt like they were out of sync um, almost even from the start, although I didn't really put much stock in them being down against North Dakota State at the half because Duke at the half is whatever this year they just they sometimes had bad halves of basketball and it was not a big deal but yeah I I was surprised um that they never I kept expecting them to sort of steamroll whoever their next opponent was and it just didn't happen and then um you know obviously they end up getting knocked out by Michigan State and you know no no huge shame in that that's a two seed that arguably shouldn't have been and 
I don't know. I mean, you look at it as a whole and you say, you know, you have these guys, you have an otherworldly talent in, in Zion Williamson. But like we talked about earlier, it's a, you know, one game elimination event and, and anything can happen at any given point. And, um, you know, whether it's through lack of continuity or any combination of things, I just don't know that this team ever quite clicked for any extended period of time um, that, you know, enough to maybe maybe a, a, the glimpses we got never really quite came together as like a fully realized potential of what this team could be. And, you know, I don't know. I, I think I was surprised at times too, that Kay didn't run a, you know, I mean, he doesn't run a ton of stuff anyway, necessarily, but like they didn't run more um, for this team and let them freelance a lot. But, you know, when they have players like this and guys that go on their, their instinct as well as, you know, some of these guys do, I, it's hard to blame them for that. And when it worked, it looked really, really good. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. At the end of the day, that's, you know, like you said, it's a one-game elimination event, and they, it's hard to put too much stock into getting eliminated by a two-seed that should have been a one, you know, in a close game. Yeah, I mean, before the season, I basically compared Duke to uh, 2015-16, where pretty much it was just Grayson Allen, it was Brandon Ingram, and it was Luke Kennard. And I said the defense, this was after Canada, the Canada trip. So I said the defense did look better. The communication did look better. And even at that time, they didn't have Trey or Cam in Ooh. those in those games. But I, I saw immediately the potential for better defense. So I said as long, I think the, the two biggest things, in my opinion, were, number one, K continuously adapting throughout the season, not just putting in a system and just letting him go, not just right. occasional wrinkles, but actually within games, changing things up and make and basically playing to the skill sets of the players and doing that will work to the benefit of the team. So um, arranging the team, arranging plays, arranging the system to the best abilities of the players, I think some would say, oh, that's just kind of too far for individuals but no that helps the team as well and he did that at times like maybe specifically yeah. the Syracuse uh, game without Zion where he had Trey flashing into the high post more but I mean that was too few and far between in my opinion there's just so much you could do and the curious thing in my opinion or let me finish up the I said there was two things at the beginning of the year that I said the second was basically energy and that's going to be fueled from a lot of uh, a, a lot of live ball turnovers. It could also be fueled from just basically pushing the pace no matter what. But live ball turnovers was key. And then you look at the last game of the season and all the stats trending into that game. I mean, I reeled off a mountain a boatload of stats for my uh, Michigan State preview going into that with the podcast, and it's just, everything was trending negatively. So in terms of what yeah. happened in that game, wasn't shocking, but still, it was Duke's second lowest forced turnover percentage of the season, and it oh. was their second worst um, turnover percentage in, that, in how they turned the ball over. They were playing a team that was ranked, I believe, 344 out yeah. of 353 teams in forced turnover percentage. I think I even remember uh, telling you that on Twitter or something. It's like, how are they going to? How are they different than the past years? Because that's what. I felt hurt them in past years. So I was watching games before and I realized, oh, wow, they're just running off everything. They, they, it doesn't matter if it's a turnover. So I actually checked the stats. I think it was hoopmath.com. And yeah, whether a team, whether their opponent makes it or misses it, 
They're running off everything. Everything is transition for them. So I was basically saying Duke better get back no matter what. So they were running off Duke on those. And then you combine that with Duke just turning it over all the time. It was a recipe for disaster. The fact that Duke was still able to be that close and it still came down to another uh, free throw disaster at the end of the game just shows how talented Duke was. But they just weren't a good offensive team. I agree with you 100%. That I'm sorry, good half-court offensive team. I agree right. with you 100% in the fact that Kay let them freelance a little too much. And the most curious thing of the season is how difficult it is for freshmen more, more times than not to communicate, to play a complicated defensive system. And he trusted that with these guys, with the switching, with the communication there, playing man-to-man. And if, they, if he trusted them to do that, I'm not sure why – they couldn't be trusted to handle, I guess, more complicated sets on offense. Yeah. So I don't know. It was very curious. I'll go into that more. But those are basically the major things I took away. So I agree with you 100%. And the, the half-court offense, especially though initiated by RJ, instead of uh, kind of using Trey a little more, just being more creative, uh, I think that hurt them at the end. But even so, it came down to playing with fire. You miss – free throws within like less than a minute left and I think they had won seven straight games where that happened and, and they won seven straight games by one or two in situations like that with, with uh, before that final game you are playing with fire it's not a stat that you can just say can be repeated over and over to win games like that it leaves too much up to chance yeah and I think that they um I'm looking at Ken Palm here, and it looks like they only lost one game this year where they attempted um, fewer than a third of their shots from three. And I don't think that that's a coincidence either. I think that there were some times where they had a tendency through a variety of reasons, but still to fall in love with that shot, even though they were never very good at it all year long. So that's something that I noticed as well going through this. And I'm like, why would they ever take that many threes going through? And I'm like, oh, right. They didn't have Zion in that game or whatever. But still, I mean, they still had guys capable of making two point shots and, it just felt like at times, even when Zion was there at times, they fell in love with, with taking that shot, and that was something that stuck out to me too. Yeah, I would say the, the biggest difference in from, I guess, early or at least um, up until, I would say this, the first, that Syracuse game where Jack saw, I mean, Jack saw, um, <laughs> Jack White went uh, 0 for 10. Um, he, was, he could provide at least reasonable yes. kind of, uh, he could keep the defense honest from not just totally packing it in. And at the beginning of the year, I said he could allow Duke to run an almost uh, Warrior-style death lineup, um, playing small with maybe Zion at the five. And they that's when I thought they were at their best. And you can say those two Virginia games, um, Duke proved the ability to be a, a great half-court team. I don't think – those were just outliers in my opinion. Because yeah. when you look at those – I mean, you have one game where Duke's just making everything from three. Then another where Duke's making all the mid-range shots, which is – by analytics, the lowest efficient shot imaginable. I mean, you look at the Michigan State team, the game, Duke was one of 10 from mid-range. The only shots they made were from right next to the rim or behind the arc, and that's the lowest amount of mid-range shots. And By wow. mid-range, I'm just saying anything inside of three-point land, not for a layup. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, Michigan State was just allowing them to do whatever they want from outside and just trying to keep them out of the lane, able to get all the way to the hoop. So you can say that, yeah, it should have been a different situation on the last possession of the game. But I think that it's too it's too easy. It's too much a cop-out. And bottom line, RJ got 
two free throws, which he could make, which could have sent it into overtime. And, hey, if he had made those, who knows what would have happened. But on the other hand, hey, they got they, you could also make the same argument, whether it's lucky or fortunate, Central Florida and Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech missing a billion shots right next to the rim and turning it over. A lot of the turn, their turnovers were unforced. Yeah. It, it just goes back to the tournament. It can be random. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I would agree with you on that. Okay, UNC, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it's like you know what you're going to get from them, and you see the differences each year, and then it comes down to, hey, guess what? They gave up 7 million three-pointers in the second half versus Auburn. So it's like same UNC as always, but it is a shame because, I mean, this team was – they were much more well-rounded than I thought from previous years. Yeah, they ran off everything, but their half-court offense was really efficient, great passing team. They, they were a better defensive rebounding team than typical. I mean, the, Roy had the exact point guard. He usually uh, loves to just r- run all the time. And Kobe White, you had Cam Johnson really making strides. It's just you, you would think they had everything. I mean, with uh, Luke May with the bigger goatee, would, would you agree or disagree? He kind of looks like Sean Crest. Oh my gosh! Uh, you know how many there are like so many Luke May lookalikes out there. It's amazing. Like <laughs> the, the, one of my favorites is the Cavalier mascot, which Ooh, like yeah, I can't unsee that now. But uh, <laughs> he's not around anymore, so uh, that won't be something. Because I was always doing that too. It's like who does he look like? You know, he's always somebody. But yeah, I mean, I liked I liked them a lot this year too, offensively, and I think. It was interesting watching them against Auburn in that game, even in the first half when it was close. I'm, I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm like, this team doesn't look right. And when I found out, I mean, I knew Nasir Little had the flu, and it was obvious that he wasn't right. But I'm looking at the, you know, just in general, I'm like, what's wrong? And then I started hearing about Cam Johnson and the flu, and I'm like, oh, okay. Because to me, that was that was the guy on their team. Yes, Kobe White could, you know, they needed him to be good. But when he str- they won games when he struggled. They didn't win as many when Cam Johnson either wasn't in or wasn't right. And it didn't happen very often. And it did in that game. And um, that's, I think, what at least in part led to their to their early exit. But, yeah, I mean, really, the only thing that they weren't uh, especially good at by UNC standards, I guess, is is offensive rebounding. And even that they were still one of the top teams in the country at it. It was just a low percentage for a Roy Williams team. But, yeah, I mean, that's everything else they were very good at. I enjoyed watching them this year. They were pretty balanced. I think it was just sort of the perfect storm, like you said, of their defense, which leads to open threes <laughs> anyway, and then Auburn, a team that loves to shoot them. And then you combine that with, you know, whatever uh, w- was going through that, that locker room and uh, apparently made it its way into Auburn's locker room too, by the way. And yeah, it, it was not a good recipe for them. Yeah, it's just, it's still curious. I, I, I can't find the exact stat. It was something like Auburn made nine of 12 from deep in the second half. So with all you can, I think they you can use all threes in the second half. Huh? I think they made 12 threes in the second half. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's just like Ooh. there's so much context you can give, and all of it is completely understandable and necessary to include with all, everything else involved in the game and the, the illness factor. But the bottom line is I just don't understand how this is what kills them every year, not guarding threes, but I don't know. Um, so they're pretty much – they lose everyone or a lot of players. Uh, yeah. So um, – I mean, I'm a big Garrison Brooks fan. He makes everyone better. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, he's still a glue guy. Um, yeah, he's not going to give you 20 and 10, at least not yet. I do think he has some Bryce Johnson in him, but I don't think he's quite as offensively skilled as Bryce was, um, even at this stage of Bryce's career. So, yeah. 
He's kind of like a, a a bigger man's without like the creative ability of a Theo Pinson and w- without the scoring, just kind of does everything. Yeah. But so so yeah, they're losing Cam Johnson, Luke May, Kenny Williams, Kobe White, and Nasir Little. So um, I think we're recording this. What is it? Uh, April tenth. It is a Wednesday, so a lot could change from now till then. Uh, but. How do you feel about uh, UNC moving forward? Um, is there a point guard that uh, there that uh, is likely? What's his name? I mean, I I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I I don't really. I don't. I'm, I'm not a fan of recruiting. So. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. So I, I I mean obviously if they get him that yeah. would be a big deal. I, they uh, I that's my biggest thing for them. They need to have a point guard. That's and bless Seventh Woods. He did okay at times in spot up duty, but that cannot be their full time point guard and have them be a good team next year. Yeah, and let me see who else uh, they have. Um, Ar- Ar- Armando Backhart, I think that's his name. Or if I'm, I sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. That's right. I had to look it up too. Yeah, Jeremiah Francis. They uh, is here a three star, a three star point guard. He's a three star because he's coming off two straight knee surgeries too, including just a micro fracture that caused him to miss his senior year. So that's not great. Oof. Um, how about how about Leaky Black? What, what, what do you think he can provide? Love great him. defensive player. Um, I know he was kind of. Even when he got injured, his minutes had gone down. He had kind of, he was, he was uh, kind of on the, on the brink of trust with Roy Williams. But I've heard great things about him. How, how do you feel he could impact the team next year? Yeah, he's a guy that I think maybe could have, you know, he was kind of in that, you know, five to seven minutes ish range in ACC play, and I do think potentially he could have won Roy's trust back enough to get into that ten to twelve uh, range because I like his game a lot. Um, he's very versatile. He can play, I mean, you know, in theory, I think Roy has said he could play one through five in theory. I don't know that he'll ever put him at the five, but he did, you know, I saw him play some point. I saw him play, you know, at six, seven playing the point is, is, is pretty cool, but he's a good ball handler too. He's a little skinny, but I'm sure they'll try to bulk him up a little bit in the off season. He sees the floor really well, I think. And um, like you said, he's pretty solid defensively and um, a pretty decent rebounder. I just, I like the versatility of his game too. And, you know, you mentioned the Theo thing with Garrison Brooks. I think that there's some Theo potential in, in Leaky as well. Oh, okay. That, that, that would be, that would be nice to see. I was a big uh, Penson fan. Sterling Manley, I thought he would have a better season. Obviously the injury that uh, held him back a bit. They also have uh, KJ Smith, Kenny Smith's kid. Um, and there's Brandon Robinson and Brandon Huffman. Are there, are there any, any of those names you feel could make an impact? I think Brandon Robinson, a lot of people have him on that sort of Kenny Williams track where, you know, his first couple of years weren't great. And, and, you know, by the time he was an upperclassman, he became this big time contributor. And obviously with a little bit of a year delay in Brandon's track with, um, you know, he's going to be a senior next year, but um, really, really good shooter. Um, I think he's, he's improved. What I like to look at with some of these guys too, is the, the sort of trajectory of their careers. And, you know, looking at his stats, he just gets better and better and better each and every year. Um, and he was a great shooter for them this year, especially later in the year. You know, you never, when he got the ball, it got to the point where, you know, I remember sort of like getting towards later in the regular season when he'd get the ball, I would think like, Ooh, is that who they want taking that shot? And by the time, you know, the season was wrapping up and they were in the postseason, it was like, yes, you want him taking that shot. I mean, he shot 46% from three, 54% from two. He didn't take a ton of shots, but I mean, you know, there were plenty of other guys on that team to take shots. So if he can, uh, do well with his increased um, usage percentage, I think we can all pretty much guarantee that it will go up, um, then, yeah, I mean, I think he could be a good guy for them, a good sort of guy 
to uh, he's a good defensive presence as well. So if you're going to be a defensive presence that can knock down threes, I think that would be useful for them. But obviously they're going to need at least one more shooter, I think. And they're looking for one right now from what I hear. Does does KJ Smith have any of uh, his father's shooting abilities? I'm not sure. You know, you talk about, you don't follow recruiting. I don't really follow. um, I, I don't remember like reading about KJ as a recruit in that way. So I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, he was three of seven in, in the bench, you know, off the bench duties this year. So who knows? Maybe. Okay. And, uh, I will go into this, uh, more on the Duke specific pods, but, uh, one thing I forgot to mention is just with Trey Jones, uh, announcing he's back. I think that's important for Duke because it does give continuity at the point guard position, which they haven't had in what yeah. seems like forever. The last point guard to actually end the season set in the role as the point guard and begin the next season similarly set as the starting point guard was actually John Shire from uh, 2008-9 and then to 2009-10. That worked out pretty well. And the last point guard to actually, from one season to the next two consecutive seasons, be in that role as the set point guard was actually Greg Paulus, three straight years, up until basically John Shire took over for him. So it's been a while since Duke's had that continuity at point guard. So that'll be interesting to see because the freshmen, it is tough for K to gain that trust in them. And also just a a point guard who doesn't shoot that well from outside, even if he does improve his shooting, the Duke point guards have historically, they are efficient spot-up shooters, which Trey hasn't proven to be as of now. So we'll see if Kay adjusts his system for that and uses Trey more to initiate. But moving on, NC State, and let me just say, you are the expert NC State fan. I mean, you are an NC State all-star on Twitter, dealing with, uh, not dealing with, taking opinions, I will say, of many NC State fans and handling them a lot better than I could, I'll say that. Uh, because there are some angry NC State fans because they didn't make the tournament. They were maybe on the bubble, you could say. And would you say that uh, it was the system war that was the problem or they just didn't play the schedule? They didn't play a, uh, a tough enough schedule? Or was it just a matter of they didn't win enough games in the ACC? Or was it just simply scoring 24 in one game? <laughs> my husband says it's the last one, although I keep insisting to him that that's not the case. No, I, <laughs> I, I, okay. I, I think for them, it was honestly, the main thing was the schedule. Um, you know, I think coach Keats has not, and I don't think he's done this with bad intentions. I don't, I don't know that he knew maybe what his own team was capable of in either of the last two seasons. And um, if he did, maybe he would have done things differently, but I think he was sort of scheduling still like they were, he was at Wilmington. And when you're at Wilmington, you know, you have no chance of an at large bid. So you might as well get through the non-con with some confidence and, uh, you know, wreck, you know, do, do work in the CAA and, 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 and take your chances that that's not. And I think he felt like the ACC slate would offset the bad non-conference strength of schedule. And I understand there are issues with the net rankings and everything else, but I mean, just looking at the resumes of the other bubble teams, um, I, I, it's hard to ignore that non-con number staring back at you um, because it was either, I don't know if it was dead last at the end of the year or second to last, but either way, it's not a good look. And I think at the end of the day, that's what did them in. The, the committee just said, look, we can't, this would have been easily avoidable by them. They didn't avoid it and we can't reward it. And so. Can, can, can I just interrupt you for one second and ask, yeah. did, they, did they even play a, uh, 
a tournament in the non-conference? Because I'm looking through their schedule. There's uh, this game against Vanderbilt at American Airlines Arena. I don't think that's Vanderbilt. Yeah. And I just don't see any. Like, why didn't they play a tournament? So they played some, like, one-off games. Yeah, I, they played some, like, one-off games against, like, um, you know, that were, like, named something. Um, like, I think they played in Atlantic City once. I don't remember if that was Penn State or Vanderbilt. And then they played, you know, like you said, another neutral court game against one of those two. But, yeah, those were on the schedule. And I think they also felt like those would offset, um, you know, some of the non-con issues, too, um, especially Vanderbilt, who was preseason top 25. So they felt like, okay, with the ACC slate, playing these non-conference games that are, like, marquee, you know, we'll be good to go, you know, and, and, um, you know, Big Ten Challenge, that'll offset everything. And it's like, yeah, not so much, not when everybody else you play in non-con basically is, is garbage. So that's, I think what did them in. Um, I do understand their beef with quadrant one wins because not all of those are created equally. And I did think that there were some teams that I felt like were less deserving than they were. And that, you know, if you stack up a bunch of quadrant wins against like, you know, teams ranked 50 to 70, it's not NC State, you know, it's not NC State's fault that they're not getting those types of chances in the ACC because the ACC was either dreck or great. You know, they were either playing one seeds or teams that finished below 500. So, you know, they didn't get a lot of those opportunities and they didn't win the opportunities that they did get. But they also just didn't get as many as some other teams did in their leagues because they didn't have uh, we, the ACC didn't have enough of those sort of middle tier type teams or, you know, upper middle type teams. They didn't have enough of those this year. And, and state didn't get enough games against them. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what it comes down to. I'm sure they're scheduled better next year. I'm sure that it's a lesson learned for them. Um, from what I hear, they're already talking about it and trying to make sure they at least get teams projected to finish like in the middle of their, you know, um, non P5 leagues as opposed to dead last. Yeah. I mean, that's a very valid point because obviously playing in the ACC and knowing you're going to play a bunch of great teams, you're entitled to play a weaker non-conference schedule, knowing you're going to play those higher teams. But number one, with the um, with the uh, uh, whatever it's called type of schedule, kind of you never know how what teams you're going to play more unbalanced a uh, schedule of playing more teams who are good some years, maybe not as good other years. It's just it's a risk. You better win the games you have against those top tier teams then, because otherwise it's like yeah, Duke. They, pl- they kind of got the short end of the stick, you could say. I wouldn't say unlucky, but they played a lot of the top-tier teams in the ACC twice, whereas like Florida State, they didn't play any of them twice. So you just never know how it's going to work year to year. So if, you, right. if you're in a year where you don't play those top-tier teams twice, then you better win when you have the chance if you are going to risk playing a weaker non-conference schedule. And yeah, play a non-conference tournament. I, I, I don't see why you wouldn't want to do that because who, who knows, you, if you advance – You'll get an opportunity to play a better team. But uh, so NC State, they do have most of their players back. Um, well, I'll start off. What do you think was the issue was that caused some of these losses? I mean, Torin Dorn had a great senior season. What, what do you think the issues were for NC State, how they couldn't get more uh, quality wins? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, part of that is because they're not as good as the teams that they're playing. You know, were they as good as teams like Clemson and Syracuse? Uh, you know, I think probably so. I mean, they proved that, um, you know, in the re- on-court results against those types of teams. Maybe even a team like Louisville on, on certain nights they were as good as. But they weren't as good as Carolina. They weren't as good as Duke. And they weren't as good as Virginia, just period, point blank. So I think that's a big reason why they weren't able to get some of those wins. And Auburn, as we saw with Auburn, is is – 
you know, when they're on, they look crazy good. And when they're not on, they, you know, feel like you feel like they could lose to anybody too. You feel like they could beat and lose to anybody. State wasn't even quite that team to me. I don't think that they ever showed that much upside, if you will. Um, Markel Johnson was never able to be that guy for more than, you know, those 15 to 20 minute stretches of games, which were big at, at times, but, you know, it, it, he needed to sort of carry that offense. Um, and I think the biggest issue they had was they didn't have a go-to big guy. They didn't have enough size on that roster. Um, and, you know, Torin Dorn was a great undersized foreman, but the fact that, you know, your undersized foreman is Torin Dorn and he's basically a guard, that's not what you want. And so, yeah, I mean, I think those are their biggest issues. If they can get uh, more size, if Markel Johnson sticks around, if they can add, you know, a little bit more consistency from some of the rest of their backcourt, um, I think that they'll be in good shape. But I think that was their issue. You know, it was basically, okay, Markel, go do stuff. And, you know, he he couldn't always get that done. And the rest of their offense, especially in the half court, uh, was not all that great, especially when you don't have a big guy that uh, opponents have to worry about. Can I ask you, is it public information? What exactly was the reason that Omer Yurt 7 transferred? Um, I'm not entirely sure about that, actually. I thought it was very strange. I assumed he would just go pro. Um, <laughs> so that was a bizarre one because everything I was hearing was indicating he was going to, you know, he would probably go pro, he'd play internationally, whatever. But yeah, I'm not really sure why. I th- yeah, I thought he was really improving. Yeah. I thought he was really improving towards the end of his last season at State, and then he transferred, and he yeah. could have he could have made a big impact there. Oh, yeah. um, they are getting uh, some four star point guard who uh, is supposed to be good. He actually, I believe, is putting in uh, some sort of waiver yeah. to see if he can enter the draft. I don't know yep. what's going to happen with that. Yeah, he's he's considering doing that because he's been out of school, I think, technically long enough to do that. So, I mean, who knows? He might be ready um, to just move on and be a professional at this point. But I know they're on the transfer market as well. They're looking for some shooters, um, maybe even looking for some size. Uh, DJ Funderburg, I think, showed some nice flashes towards the end of the year. They got Manny Bates, who redshirted this year. He's going to be able to play um, 6'10 kids. So, um, you know, they have some size, and they have a big guy uh, coming in as well, I believe although he's not quite as highly regarded as um, the guard that they had coming in. So, yeah, I mean, it, if they get everybody back, though, I mean, that I think that puts them in pretty good shape. It's just they've had some attrition here in years past, so it'll be interesting to see if they can hold on to everybody they got. Okay, and do you have kind of an overlying, uh, I don't, I don't want to say take, but opinion of just those the three triangle teams and where they stand right now? Yeah, I mean, just like going into next year, like what they did this year. Uh, bo- both is fine, whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I enjoyed watching State in the NIT. I don't think you can put too much stock in it in terms of what it means for next year or anything like that. But it was it was good to watch them do that. I think it ultimately, maybe for some guys individually, it'll be good for them to have sort of gone on that run and play together the way that they did. Um, and I like them a lot next year if they can keep everybody. Is I, there anyone who you think could make a big jump? I want to say Funderburg because I just love his upside. Um, he's really athletic. He's just, I think he needs to put on a little weight, improve his hands a little bit. Um, but I mean, he's, he's athletic. He can shoot a little bit from the outside and stretch the floor. So, you know, maybe he'll end up being, he's not quite as, he's not as skilled as Yurt Saban was, but maybe he could be that kind of guy, you know, like a stretch five for this offense, the way Yurt Saban was, um, in his year with Keats. But yeah, I like him a lot and his upside, what he can do. 
Okay, and uh, I love his name. Um, fun yeah. uh, all right, so so we'll, now that we've uh, kind of finished the triangle, we'll move through a little quicker. Um, Virginia Tech, I mean, they new coach Mike Young from Wofford. I'm really going to miss Buzz. I love Buzz. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Mike Young, he's proven his ability at Wofford. He's a great coach, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine the recruiting war for Kerry Blackshear if he becomes a oh grad God. transfer. I mean, but basically, yeah, they've, they're losing the whole team uh, besides Wabise Beatty, if I'm pronouncing that right. He's in the portal right now as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Um, so I guess it was like PJ Horn. But, um, yeah, I mean, for, for, but to concentrate on this season, Virginia Tech, they were just an awesome team to watch. They had exactly what Buzz really recruited a ton at Marquette with those guys that they can just – yeah, it's like positionless basketball, as Coach K says, where yeah. where they're all around like six five, and right. they can just do everything. And they can, they were, they can rebound, yeah, defend. Yeah, yeah, they were just a really great, fun, impressive team to play. And yeah, I'm I'm gonna miss them. And it, it was yes, I was happy, obviously happy to see uh, Duke win. But Ahmed Hill missing that uh, shot yeah, that at the brutal. end of regulation. What he, a he was, I know. I mean, he was my favorite player for Virginia Tech on the season, so that was pretty brutal. But uh, I thought they were fantastic in the way they lost Chris Clark before the season even started. I thought he could be sixth man of the year. Then Justin Robinson went down. They had to change their offense, slow it down a bit. They played more at the high post with Blackshear. And then they came back, went back to uh, more high ball screens, but continued on with that – with, with kind of that hammer with Blackshear at the high post. And it was just a really great team. And to be – I mean, my honest opinion, they outplayed Duke. But it's just it, – it's it's disappointing to see Bud Lee, Buzz leave. What's your takeaway from yeah. uh, Virginia Tech this season? Yeah, and I mean, I I don't I don't try to say this to, to pick on Coach K, certainly. He, not like he needs my, me to defend him. He's, he's, he's got plenty on, on his resume to back up what a great coach he is. But one thing that stood in contrast to me, and I know Justin Robinson missed more games than Zion did, but like the way that each coach sort of responded, in my opinion, to losing a guy like that, that I felt like was very important to their team. Um, and, you know, and Duke as well in terms of changing the way they do things and adding wrinkles. And like you said, sort of adjusting. I mean, first game out of the gate, they obliterated NC State without Justin Robinson. And I was not expecting that at all. I just was, I was stunned to see that. They also didn't have anybody. Uh, you know, taller. They had like one guy in the rotation that was Kerry Blackshear that was taller than six six. I mean, that in and of itself to me is crazy that they were able to do some of the things they were able to do. Yeah, they were they were they had some long athletic guys, like you said, but um, you know, that puts you at a height disadvantage a lot, and it didn't matter for them. But yeah, he he was sort of able to adapt um what they did uh offensively and defensively. It was finally a Buzz Williams defensive team, and so I mean, I guess better late than never in terms of uh getting what we thought we'd get it from the Marquette version of Buzz. But yeah, it's going to miss that personality for sure. Um, but everybody everybody sort of seemed to know that this was coming, um, no matter what Virginia Tech did, because this is just what Buzz does. He's from Texas, right? Yeah, he is. But he also like, he doesn't, he gets a little restless sort of wherever he is after, you know, a few years. So that's just kind of who Buzz is at this point. And people know that going in and I don't, doesn't seem to be much hard feelings one way or the other, but they're going to be completely wiped out. Um, Mike Young is still a really, I think it's a good hire. He's a really good coach. He knows the game really, really well. He's beaten. I mean, we talk about triangle teams. He's won at NC state. He won in Reynolds a few years ago. And I remember being really impressed with his team there. They won in Chapel Hill last year. I mean, the, the, the dude knows what he's doing. He's going to have to build it up, but he knows what he's doing. 
So, so are you saying Buzz Williams is trying to be Larry, Larry Brown and moving every couple years? Not quite like Larry. Well, Larry Brown kind of left some dirt in his bat each time also. <laughs> so. Well, there is that, yes. But, yeah, Buzz is like a five- to seven-year guy, and then he'll move on. Okay, Florida State. Florida State, same as Virginia Tech. They, they had a lot of upperclassmen, and they kind of – they were the most inconsistent team. They could win. They could win any game, lose any game before last season, and then it all came together. And it was really cool to see. I thought they had the makings of what could have been real, a really special tournament. And then, really, try Phil Kofer's father passed away. It was just yeah. really sad. Um, and now they're going to lose five out of the top eight scores. Yep. And it's just I've really enjoyed watching that team in, in terms of the way they were able to uh, use players in different kinds of roles and everyone accepted it. And they they had a lot of young talent combined with uh, some more experience. I would say for next year, I'm actually intrigued because even though the the rotation is going to be slimmer, I do think that might actually help in terms of bigger roles for each. Like Cabin Jelly is a stud. Hopefully he's not leaving. He's um, a, he declared that he's gonna um, he uh, tends oh, to hire an agent. Damn it! Like, all, right, yeah. all right, so everything <laughs> I say is now worthless. I know. Um, right, I, right. Is MJ Walker gone too? Uh, I mean, I need to see what he's listed as here. Let me see. Uh, MJ Walker, sophomore. So he should be back. Well, I was thinking. Decla- I mean, he has talent. Obviously, he's been way too inconsistent. But yeah. some of these guys who are just like crazy talented, they might go anyway. But yeah. uh, I mean, he has the talent. So I mean, he could be the go-to guy. But I really loved uh, Devin Vassell and uh, mm-hmm. Raekwon Gray, who I actually refer to as Lil Zion. Um, I think yeah. those those guys could step up. But uh, yeah, I'd really hope that Cabin Jelly would be back. But uh, as for this season. I, I just, again, I really love the way things were headed. I love the way Kofor of Forrest, if he can really take on a bigger role as a point guard and be a little more yeah. aggressive. Maybe I think he can get that help there, too. Yeah, he was dealing with turf toe all year, and I think that really held back his play at yeah. times. I mean, T- Terrence Mann, great year, a little inconsistent as typical. but And, and then P.J. Savoy, he just chucks it each time. So I yeah. think he kind of fell out of favor for a bit. But I, I love Florida State, and it's just a really shame about Kofor. Yeah, that was um, something where, you know, when they were able to win with um, that first game without without Phil and, you know, with everything that was going on around them, I thought they were a great a great story for that one game in a tournament that, you know, you really look for those and there are plenty of them. But it was really cool to see Phil Kofer has been one of my favorite players to watch for a couple of years now. And it was really great to see him, um, you know, have some really nice moments here late in his career. And I, I hate that for him and his family. And I hate that he couldn't be out there. For their game against Gonzaga, hope that they're doing better. But yeah, I mean, look, Leonard Hamilton is going to have almost the same type of roster from year to year. They're going to be long. They're going to be, uh, he's going to play a ton of dudes and <laughs> it's going to be dudes that we feel like we've never heard of before. And we're like, who's that guy? And all of a sudden, um, you know, somebody steps up and, and I think, you know, Leonard's not the best coach in the conference or anything, but I think he probably deserves a little more respect than he gets from time to time. And I, I enjoy watching them and, and, you know, you, you kind of know what you're going to get with FSU from year to year. They're probably going to have another pretty good recruiting class, although like you, I don't really follow that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that they'll be they'll be all right. But it was it was a shame that, you know, Phil had to miss that trip out to San Jose and, and miss their last game. All right, Louisville, pretty solid year under uh, Chris Mack, his first year. They used uh, some of the pack line principles as Virginia. They suffered some of the same kind of second half meltdowns, probably more than they did yeah. the year before. Most 
I mean, most notably, many remember UVA when DeAndre Hunter hit a banked-in three from two years ago. And then, and they were up, like, by double digits uh, halfway through the second half in at least five yep. games where, where they just melted down. People think of Duke. But the game before, I think they were oh, up. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah, they 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 were up by ten with like eight minutes yep. left. They lost that one too. Yep. So I think it, I mean that's gotta drain you mentally. They lost eight of their last eleven, including their last game, ironically, to uh, Minnesota under Richard Pitino. But no, the NCAA doesn't do storylines. They don't they don't do yeah, narratives. Right. Um, I'm almost afraid to ask. Is Jordan Awara back? Uh, he declared, I believe. God damn. Well, right. at least he's going to, you know, I don't know that he hired an agent or anything, but, yeah, I think he's going to test the waters. At yeah, least. and when I give a disappointed reaction, that's just me uh, wishing he was back. Obviously, I support the players whatever they want. Sure, sure. But, but I'm just disappointed as a fan. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's tough. I would say he was amazing. I predicted him to be the most improved player at the beginning of the year. Kristen Cunningham solid in his role as a senior, good decision maker. Yeah. Steven Enoch is someone who man, I look at him and I just there's so much talent. So if he uh, yeah. if he's a hard worker, sky's the limit for, uh, yeah. for him. Both of their bigs to me are, are intriguing because at times they look amazing and you're like, wow, these guys are great. And then at times you're like, why are you like this? And so I think, um, you know, they, they sort of summed up Louisville to me in, in a lot of ways where you're like, okay, if both of them weren't on, if one of them wasn't on, um, or no, sorry, if both of them weren't on, they were, Louisville was always going to be in big trouble. And I think some of that led to sort of some of those late game meltdowns and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I think those guys are really intriguing at times, have really nice skill sets great rebounders, great shot blockers. And um, it was nice to sort of roll the lot or, you know, roll the dice for, for Chris Mack and say like, well, if Enoch's not having a good game, I can put him a leak and vice versa. But yeah, I mean, I think um, one of those guys or both maybe will, will take a leap next year. And then uh, they got to stay out of foul trouble though. And they've got, um, I don't follow recruiting either. Full disclosure, <laughs> but I did when I was sort of looking at what was coming in for everybody else next year, I noticed that they have the top class in the ACC as of right now. And it's not, particular I mean it's maybe a little close but it's not all that close they signed a bunch of guys I think like six guys and a couple you know at least one five star so um yeah they they've signed a pretty strong class I think from what I remember seeing um and that'll be interesting because Chris Mack's gonna need to sort of re- rebuild this team in his image and um I, I know that they were a weird team there were moments in games where I felt like they looked like a team that could you know, when they were clicking, you're like, wow, this team's really good. They look like a one seed. And then there were times, you know, within the same game that it looked like they'd never seen a basketball before. So um, they were very strange to watch. Is Ryan McMahon going to be back or is he, or is he gritty so. enough? Is he, is he gritty enough to be a, uh, is he going to try out for a slot receiver for the Patriots? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah, no, he'll, he'll be back as, as far as I know. I mean, I, I guess if anybody enters the transfer portal for, the, for them, it would probably be out of concern for one of the recruits coming in. But yeah. Yeah, well, that wasn't a serious question about whether he'll be back. It was just, it was just to get it. Uh, it was to get it. It's to get in a horrible Patriots joke. All right, so uh, Syracuse, they are they they're losing Tyus Battle, Ch- uh, Chukwu, and Howard. Um, battle to the draft, the other two to graduation. I really expected more development out yeah. of some of their guys this year, especially uh, Dolazaj. Dolazaj. I was, sorry, yeah, Dolazaj. He, he I, I was him. really I disappointing. Yeah. And that might be biased just because of how high I was and in his ability. I mean, yeah, he, I if he can just get stronger, uh, get more physical. I mean, I, I, I am the last person who should ever say anything about someone's body. But like <laughs> Skinny Legs McGee, I mean, if he can I just 
get a little more bulk. I mean, he has the exact talent that would help them so much. I also thought Brissett, he would take a step up. But I think after the first season of being basically able to do whatever he wanted on offense, being asked to be more efficient, that was an adjustment for him. And he uh, went pro as well, so they'll lose him. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I probably should have looked into some of this before. It's all right. It's all right. It's it's always a fluid situation too. I mean, from from moment to moment, like somebody could change their I mean, mind or you know whatever else. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess it's kind of like NFL contracts. When you see the right. initial money, you're like, oh wow, but then you see the guaranteed money. It's different. Right. Now we're waiting right. to see if they've signed with an agent um, after declaring, which makes all the difference. Um, but Elijah Hughes, he was so hot and cold every game. I mean, he could score 20 yeah. in the first half and none in the second. So I think if he can be more consistent, that'll help. Uh, Buddy Bayheim, I mean, solid but limited in what he can do, but he can knock down shots. So I mean, I, yeah, and I think for Syracuse, for me, if they can get, if they don't have some guy who's going to be ball dominant and, and be sort of the guy that, that they go to in like ISO situations late in the shot clock, which seems to be their offense then I don't know that that's a bad thing for them because maybe it'll force Beheim and his staff to sort of make some adjustments and, and, and maybe play a brand of offense that suits everybody a little bit better and, and is a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is I want to use, reliable, steady, whatever you want to say. And I think it'll lead to some better development for some of these guys because, yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it seemed like the offense was give it to Tyus and let the shot clock wind down and hope he can make something happen. And they, they're going to have to do something different um, next year for sure. But is it really a Syracuse team if that's not what they're doing every single year? I know. Year? With, with long twos. They, they, they do the high screen, high screen, ISO, long two, and it's every play. Um, I guess one one guy who, if you saw him a little more closer, I'm, I'm uh, interested in, Jalen Carey, because based on what I'd read, they expected more out of him. Um, what was the issue with him being uh, – he started out the year, I know, with Howard out. He got more playing time than expected at the start. Then yeah. it went down. So what was the concern with him? Yeah, I mean, some of it, I think, was Buddy playing well, Buddy Bayheim playing well. And so instead of, you know, uh, Jalen playing for Frank, it was Buddy um, getting in there. But, I mean, look, Frank or Jalen, he didn't rebound very well. Uh, he had a very high turnover rate. My goodness, uh, 34.1%, which is very bad. Um, and so, you know... Uh, if you can't, you know, if you can't produce and you're going to turn the ball over a lot, especially for a team like Syracuse, that doesn't have a ton of possessions and you're not hitting from three. He was just 17% from three. That's, I don't think that's going to lend you to getting a ton of, of, of minutes in Bayheim system. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're going to have to, yeah, he looks like he didn't, I, I, I'm trying to find the last game he played in where he didn't have a turnover and you have to go back to January. So that's not great. Um, but yeah, they're going to have to get more from everybody on this roster, quite frankly, because they're going to be losing a lot. Okay. Wake Forest. I mean, what is the deal that they're saying? Like this is like Danny Manning's on the hot seat now. I mean, he's a good recruiter, but we're still kind of the jury's out. If you, if that might be being nice on, on how good an in-game coach he is. Jalen Horde. I know he's looking into possible draft scenarios, but I just, we haven't seen the development. Brandon Childress, I do like, but you can't put so much on his shoulders. Chaundy Brown. I I was hoping. Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, he has the ability, but yeah, I was hoping it's more of a from him, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought it was going to be even bigger. And it's just there hasn't been much continuity because there's always that one stud that Manning gets, but mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to be around him. I mean, they're young. They're young, so there are there is potential, which might be why Wake Forest, 
uh, the whoever's the AD is giving him another chance. But how did you feel about their performance this year and uh, moving forward into next year? What can possibly correlate? I mean, I'll say I'll say this: uh, they played much better late in the year than I expected them to. Um, especially after that game they had against North Carolina at home where, I mean, it, it, I forget what it was to start 18, nothing, something like that. And you're just like, you just are watching them. Like, are you serious right now? And um, it, it was not good, but then, you know, they, they won at Notre Dame and they don't win many road games. Then they get obliterated at state and they beat Miami. And I think, um, and they got blown out at home by Syracuse, but then the way they played at Duke, um, obviously in a game they arguably should have won. <laughs> um, and then the way they played at home against Florida State even to end the season, um, it definitely raised my eyebrow enough that I was like, wow, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe there is something here. Maybe there's a spark here. But I, I thought that really they were horrible defensively against Miami in the AC tournament. And that's been their biggest issue. They're not a good defensive team. And like you said, they've had some continuity issues for a variety of reasons. The biggest positive thing I could say about Danny Manning is he's always managed to develop a big, Olivier Saar, whether he was hurt or whatever, just did not take that step this year um, to be that guy that we've seen some of his others, um, you know, do. Even some guys that we weren't sure would, would be able to do that have taken a step forward, but they didn't have that guy this year. And, yeah, I mean, I, it just feels like uh, we're all sort of biding our time here until the inevitable happens to Danny, but we'll see. Okay, the most disappointing team in this season was Clemson. I mean, they started out, I believe, uh, 22 in the AP poll, and you can take that with a grain of salt if you want. I mean, I, I usually do, but it still just proves that there were some high expectations, and in my opinion, deservedly so. They were experienced. They mm-hmm. had everything, but when it, when it came down to it, they lost a lot of close games. And while I, I, I said that close games, I don't know how much – kind of the repeatability factor is with that. But the bottom line is Duke, even though you could say they were fortunate in some, you could give the ball to certain guys and just say, go make a play and expect at least some sort of uh, positive results most of the time. Clemson, they were such a great system team, but I think that's what hurt them. You couldn't just give the ball to one guy and say, go make a play. No matter Marquise Reed, such a good player. I actually thought he should have been at least second team instead of third. I thought that he could even, you could even make an argument for first team, but I wouldn't have have hated that either. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, they, they were a great team, but it's just, they lost a lot of close games and they really underperformed up to what I felt me personally, that they would be at the beginning of the year. Yeah, Shelton Mitchell didn't really take the step that I thought he might take this year. I don't think he was very – he wasn't good enough for them this year um, to be really, really good. Um, And when you have, you know, an upperclassman like him, a senior, playing the way that he played and kind of regressing, I think that hurt them a lot too because, like you said, they don't – they already don't have that guy that you give the ball to and say go make a play, but they don't have that margin for error that other teams do too for that same reason. So. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the joke is, and, you know, it's not entirely a joke, I guess, that, like, you know, Clemson sort of traded in its football soul for its basketball soul. And, I mean, when you look at, like, the fact that Marquise Reed, um, he was an 84% free throw shooter. He missed 28 free throws all year. And I guess, what did he miss, like, four at NC State in the last, like, 17 seconds, I think it was? I mean, you can't make up a stat like that. And and it's just that kind of stuff happened to Clemson throughout the year that you're like, how do you even – find yourself in these absurd situations. It was like the Virginia, you know, final three games of the tournament, but like in reverse. And it was just kind of absurd how these things kept happening to them. But it's been sort of more the rule than the exception. I feel like with Brad Brownell, I haven't always loved the way he's coached offense. I guess it was better this year. 
Um, but they're, they're limited some with their personnel and I get it. I mean, Elijah Thomas was probably the closest thing they had to like a legit big and he's, you know, always in foul trouble as good as he could be defensively. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not good though for them right now. Like they lose a ton and I don't know if they have a ton coming in. So that's not the best news for Brad Brownell. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Elijah Thomas, definitely the most skilled player, but also in foul trouble. They were actually leading Duke, and the game was in their favor in terms of tempo. Then he picked up his second foul with, like, eight minutes left to go in the first half, and it was just when Duke, when they grab hold of that momentum, it's just, it's tough to get it back. And as you said, you can't make that stuff up about missed free throws at the end. You have to have the talent to make up for it, to make up for unfortunate situations. And while Duke could do that, for certain for many games i mean even them they were hurt by it by the end so clemson they did lack that talent so it's going to be at least based on players expected for next season it could be it could be a rough go of it for uh clemson um let's see here we have georgia tech georgia tech same thing in terms of they don't have a bunch of playmakers i do like alvarado banks is a beast on defense i think devoe He's a great shooter. I think he's the one guy who maybe they can hope will develop enough to become some sort of scoring threat off the bounce. But other than that, I think they are really underrated defensively. One of the best defensive teams in the country, in my opinion. I think Banks helped that a lot. But it was just a struggle to score offensively, so they had to play really slow just to kind of get the game in their favor to be competitive. Yeah, that's the thing with them is that, like, they – and this has been, I feel like this even dates back to Brian Gregory and the end of his tenure there. They've just been this team that, you know, could defend at a pretty high level. I mean, you look at their defensive stats and they're they're very good. Do you think um, they should run an option offense? <laughs> yeah, triple option, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, not coincidentally or, or whatever, they, they were, uh, they shot 30.7% from three, which is awful. It was 330th in the country. There are 353 teams, so that's very bad. And they turned it over a ton, and that was the other thing for them. Like, okay, you can't shoot, whatever, but don't, you know, don't turn it over a ton, especially when you're going on the slower side. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't know if this is like a passer thing or if this is a personnel thing or, or what this is, but they feel a little bit to me sometimes like Clemson light in the sense that like they defend well and sometimes really well, but like their offense just is always going to be what holds them back. And, um, you know, they don't, they, I ha- it was not great, but like you said, some of those guys you mentioned, I think have some, have some upside to the, to their game and banks is pretty athletic. I remember, I still remember watching the replay of that game and seeing him dunk on Zion and being like, Holy crap. Like you don't see guys dunk on Zion very often. And he had the athleticism to do it. Now he finished like two points in that game. So it's whatever. But like the fact that he had that in him, was enough to make you sort of raise an eyebrow. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, I didn't realize Alvarado was just a sophomore. That's pretty big time for them, assuming he stays on that team. And, yeah, Moses Wright had some nice moments. DeVoe. So, you know, you, you think that they should be on an upward trajectory, but these guys have got to get way better offensively. Yeah, I mean, these are schools with – they have some massive history in, in terms of success with Wake Forest and Georgia Tech. Yeah. I mean, it's just tough to – I mean, a decade ago, it would be tough to imagine they yes. would be at this level of struggling yes. to even be 500. So, I mean, there's just so much history with both of those teams. It's I don't want to say shocking because we're almost used to it by now, which is very unfortunate. All right, so uh, Miami. Miami, they got to get my, my dude Chris Likes from hell. My, my, my little DMV buddy, Love he that. is uh, – he's, he's having a tough go of it. And um, that's yeah. – like is – Duwan, uh, is it 
Duan Hugh or Hernandez? I guess it's Hernandez now. He's ineligible, so he won't be back, I don't think. Because I I I know he's suspended for this year. I don't know about... I I thought he was going pro, but I'm not 100% of that. Oh, you might be right about that. I I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I know DJ Harvey's testing the waters. Um, Uh, For Notre Dame, yeah. Oh, I'm so, why am I mentioning him? I'm, we're on Miami. All right. So, um, yeah, Hugh, hopefully he will play next year. They're losing pretty much everyone yep. besides, besides that. Uh, I think Vasilovic is really the only one that's coming back. I think even Anthony Mack, he uh, announced he's transferred. Oh, so, yeah, so it'll be just, uh, Vasilovic, Magusti, uh, freshman Isaiah Wong, and Chris Likes are the only guys I really know right now. And it's just, it could have been so different with Huel or Hernandez because that really gave them a second offensive threat. Lawrence, he's a good stretch, but and Zach Johnson, he could play his role well at times, yeah, and Izundu yeah. can be that glue guy. But I think Huel or if uh, Hernandez, I think that really <laughs> threw everything off. So it, it was yeah. it was tough to watch. Uh, every team basically just put everyone on likes, put all the help on likes, and there's nothing really he could do. Yeah, it was. I mean, they had, you know, like you said, they had the like those guys that they played. That was all they had to play. But they they were they were pretty decent at times and could do some nice things. But at the end of the day, you were going to concentrate on stopping likes, and and everybody knew that. And um, love watching him play though, and and hopefully he sticks around and they they're able to get him some help from somewhere. All right, Boston College. I think Winston. They were never going to be a great team. Right. And probably not a very good team, but Winston Tabs, when he went down mid-January, that basically ended their competitive season. Um, so that was unfortunate. They lose Kai Bowman, Jordan, Jordan Chapman. So it's going to be Nick Popovich and Winston Tabs kind of taking the reins there. How, how'd you feel their season went and uh, moving forward? Yeah, I don't feel very good about them, honestly. And I know Jim Christian, they already had to come out after the season and say like, yeah, we're keeping him. And I mean, there's a reason for that. There's just not, uh, you know, this season, I think, on the whole, was a disappointing one for them. I, I know they had some injuries, like you were saying, and, and it hurt them. But, you know, you, you, I think you expected to see, at least I did, you know, guys like um, Jordan Chapman take more of a step forward. And, you know, Kai Bowman was good, but he can't do it by himself. And, and obviously he's going to, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure I saw he was going to go pro. So that's not a huge surprise. But, yeah, I mean, like, they just, they, and they lost some close games too, some games, sometimes games they had no business losing. So, um, I know they got Chris Heron Jr. on that roster. He played some, and it's just you, you look at them and you don't really see a whole lot of cause for optimism. I understand why Boston College fans are a little frustrated. It's got to be weird for like Chris Dudley and uh, Matt Ryan to see the football team and the basketball team in such pretty horrific uh, situations after they were great. Well, they were there. It's interesting how there's a, there's that like one player who can make such a big difference. And obviously, Dudley was surrounded by other talented players, and obviously Matt Ryan had other players with him, but it's still, I mean, when, once those guys left, it really hasn't been the same. Yeah, it's I, I miss Al Skinner, frankly, but that's partially because, and, you know, this speaks a little bit, I guess, to why I enjoy Virginia and why I even enjoy Georgia Tech football. I like watching things that are different, and the flex offense was something that was different, and it worked. And so I, I miss seeing Al Skinner and Chestnut Hills um, and it's been a downward spiral ever since. Yeah, I mean, I remember, like, Gary Williams back in the day. He he, he was great for them. And I think sometimes as fans, with a team that might not be expected to be good, once, once a coach gets them to the level where they're consistently good to very good but might not be 
able to take the uh, the step towards greatness, then fans all of a sudden get like really rebellious. That's why um, who's the uh, Texas TCU coach used to be at Pitt. Um, Oh, Jamie Dixon. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's what happened with him. Pitt was great. or not, not, They were very good year after year, and I think the fans, they almost held it against him that he was never able to take them from great to, like, elite. Right. But it's almost unfair, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this has been bad, though, so. That's true. Okay, uh, Notre Dame, it was a very odd thing to see Notre Dame not be kind of – what they usually are under Mike Bray and um, what, what's his name? Uh, Fluger. He's lost. He lost. He played too many minutes to, ha- to be able to come back, right? Well, evidently they're uh, going to be able to get him back. I, I didn't know this either. One of my, I was texting with a friend the other day, another media member, and he was saying something about Fluger, and I was like, "What do you mean?" And he was like, "Well, they got him. You know, they're going to be able to get him a medical redshirt." I was like, "Oh, oh that's awesome. Yeah, that's, so that's great for them. Yeah, especially with like you said a minute ago, losing DJ Harvey." Um, I think he's going to the transfer portal, if I'm not mistaken. But either way, he's not. I don't think he's coming back. So that's um, they're going to be losing him, which which thinks. But um, they do have some pieces, some young guys that I thought played well late in the season. And, you know, Mike Bray doesn't usually play guys like that, but he didn't really have a choice um, with all the injuries they had. So and you're right. It was jarring to see his teams just be so ineffective offensively. Um, it was certainly jarring to me. And, and I, I am a. I love watching them play. I love watching them run offense. Um, I love watching the way that they play offense, but that, you know, this wasn't your typical Notre Dame team because they just didn't have the type of skill that you need to have to, to execute that kind of offense right now. But it's probably, it, it can only benefit them. I think as long as they can keep enough guys on the roster. And I know there's some optimism surrounding some of the guys that they have coming in. Um, again, I don't follow recruiting closely like you don't either, but there's some optimism with them that, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be able to take a step, uh, you know, that they're going to add something to this roster too, even if Bray doesn't usually play freshmen. But I mean, a ton of freshmen saw some big minutes for them. And uh, I think that can only benefit them um, moving into next year. I don't know how good they'll be, but I certainly think they'll be way better than they were this year. Yeah. I mean, freshman inconsistency kind of held true there. I mean, Lazuski, you look at his last four games, I think yeah. he went like uh, from deep, he went like, Oh, for like five, then like six for six for seven and like yeah. five, four for five then like Oh, for seven. So, I mean, that's what freshmen do. You have a uh, practice hub trying to get used to his role. I expect a little more out of Temple Gibbs, yeah. uh, but John Mooney took a good. Yeah. I think John Mooney took a big step up yep. and, and Durham showed some potential. So yeah, I think I like Fluger, that. Fluger could make, I mean, I, I, I think they could make a big jump next year. They, they could. I liked uh, Dane Goodwin as well, what he was able to do late in the year for them. So it'll only be – I know Mike doesn't like to play freshman, I get why, but I think it'll only benefit them going into next year. Yeah, yeah, I do see, I do see a lot of positive, uh, positive potential for them. All right, and uh, I think the last team we have is Pitt. And Xavier Johnson, another DMV guy who I uh, paid attention to, great player, a lot of ex- – I mean, he's just really fun to watch. No fear. Him and McGowan's in the backcourt. Awesome. Great future. Great players to build your team around as it's trying to make up for um, whatever that guy is, the, the, the ex-coach. Um, oh, Kevin Stallings. Yeah, yeah Kevin Stallings. Um, I think Capel's biggest get, to be honest, was Jared Wilson frame yeah. staying Absolutely. at Pittsburgh. I mean, that was huge for them to kind of take the It would have been really his- terrible without him. Yeah, I mean, Terrell Brown showed some potentially a size, doesn't play like it a little too often, but he has that ability. I mean, he showed some great things against Duke, but that backcourt, 
that gives me a lot of hope for the future, I think, and they have some good recruits coming in. But I, I really like what Capel was able to do his first year, even if it didn't uh, correlate to as many wins as some hoped, even though I feel like that hope might have been off base. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was going to yeah. say they, they had an unfortunate – it was an, an unfortunate and fortunate start, right, in the sense that they – you know, start 12 and five and, you know, they beat Louisville at home and in overtime and they beat Florida state at home and they beat them by double digits. And you're like, wow, look at, you know, and they, they lost a close one at state. They did get blown out by Carolina, but at that point in the year, um, that was the only team that had blown them out. Like that was, uh, that was the only blowout loss they'd suffered. And considering what they'd done the year before, you know, that was, you had to look at that as a pit fan and be optimistic, but they, I think they lost 13 straight after that in ACC play. It's just a really, really brutal stretch for them. And maybe there was a little bit of false optimism there from what they did early. I don't think Capel would trade it, um, trade winning those games, because that was a great experience for them. But, yeah, that was it's, that's a tough stretch to go through for a team that's built the way they were with so limited offensively. It was probably pretty impressive on the whole to, to see what they were able to do defensively, um, all things considered, for Capel in this first year. Okay, so on the whole, I would say – the ACC, they were they were they had a really solid season. Though, as you mentioned earlier, I think they were top and bottom heavy, not yeah. too much middle. They got five out of I believe six five teams out of the Sweet 16. Really impressive. I think Florida State possibly could have gone further, but you never know um, since they didn't have Kofor. But I think it was an impressive season. The overall this year to next how it's going to go is a lot of experience this year when you look at the teams next year there's going to be a lot of inexperienced teams so i think there's a lot more uncertainty uh heading into next year than it was as we headed into this season yeah i think that will um there'll be more of a middle um in this this uh next year's acc which is not not the worst thing if you're looking for quadrant one wins i guess but um you know I think there'll be a little bit more of that. And I think it'll be a little bit more crowded around the top. Um, assuming Virginia maybe has a little more attrition than we think, because if they bring almost everybody back, they'll probably, I mean, you would have to think they might run away with it um, if they bring almost everybody back. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, Car- uh, Duke's Carolina's certainly going to take a step back. Duke will take maybe somewhat of one. How much of one is TBD, but it, it helps all those teams too, that the rest of the league is going to take a step back too. Um, and it'll probably help the league on the whole that I don't know that there's going to be like a truly, truly awful team in next year's ACC, um, just at least based on what last year's teams did and, and what they might be bringing back. I don't know that we're going to have six teams under 500, which that's not an acceptable number, I don't think, for the ACC. And that's something that I think will change next year. You think Clemson could compete at all? <laughs> I don't know. They, they, they worry me. For me to, to say it's going to be a tire fire. But um, the rest of the, the rest of them, I think, you know, the bottom of the league, I think, will take some steps up because they bring, they, at least right now, they bring back some guys. And, and, and um, maybe maybe you look at Miami as, as a potential team you circle and go, oh, I don't know, maybe Boston College too, but. Clemson, but you know, I don't. I think the the very bottom of the league is only going to get better with with Notre Dame and, and Pitt um, it's looking to improve. Maybe even Georgia Tech. So um, that'll help because having six teams under five hundred is not good. No, not at all. All right. Well, I, th- I think this was a lot of fun, just kind of running down um, the league bit by bit. Obviously, uh, since we both don't follow recruiting, there were some surprises in terms of who's going to be back. But um, I, I think. This year, 
especially because there was more experience in uh, some of the teams, obviously from a Duke podcast perspective, not much experience on Duke, which possibly hurt the team in, in the overall result as well as through the season. But I think there's a lot of teams that really benefit from that experience won't be there next year, but UVA, the team that did win all of a sudden now it's, Bennett's that coach that you look at his name, and he's a winner instead of not being able to win the big one, which is exactly how ridiculous that the uh, takes go once a team wins it, which is funny. Yeah. It's actually yeah. interesting. If I if I said uh, before this tournament, in the last 20, who had won the most? Who, who What team, not, eight, not just ACC, overall, before this year, in the last 20, what team had won the most tournaments? Uh, gosh, uh, I don't know that one off the top of my head. I'm trying to think. So it'll be 99. So, well, is it Duke? It might be Duke. No, I actually didn't want to mention 99 because that way it would kind of give me your way. Um, Duke, Duke three, UNC three, but but UConn won in 99. UConn won four out of oh. 16 years. Oh. UConn won four from 99 through 2014. Crazy. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I knew it was a trick in some way. I just didn't know how. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you have then Nova with two, Florida with two, yeah. Louisville, Maryland, UVA, Kansas, MSU, and Kentucky. So you just never know. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think the – the ACC season, a lot of fun, and should be again next year. So, Lauren, th- thanks so much. I mean, I'd love to have you go- on again, maybe sometime during the slow off season, to kind of, I don't know, maybe discuss like uh, lists of ACC players, <laughs> lists of best yeah. games, or uh, if not next year during the season. But either way, it okay. was great finally having you on to chat about uh, some ACC hoops. And thank you so much. How can everyone uh, get in contact with you? Um, you can most easily find me usually at Ellie Brownlow on Twitter, and uh, you can find my work at WRALsportsfan.com. It's very much worth it, Lauren. Thanks again, and I will be talking to everyone soon.